Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the... Um, one of the, the not-so-uplifting parts of my job is taking funerals. And I've only taken a few, to be honest, but they are interesting occasions. And when you take a funeral and when you're part of that whole process, you get to see how people think about death and the afterlife and where people have gone uh, post-mortem after the grave. And in Western culture, that's just not something we think about a lot. Most of us are pretty here-and-now people. We're getting on with the stuff in our everyday world, and we just don't give a lot of thought to where we're going or where other people are going after they die. Until we're confronted by the death of a loved one or a family member, uh, until you have to take part in a funeral and you have to maybe give a eulogy or something like that. And, and, and what you find is these perceptions about death and the afterlife bubble up to the surface. And often deep-held views or just things that we've picked up from somewhere, they, they, they kind of come out. Those are the times, and you just get to hear what's been under the surface all along. Sometimes, if you've, if you've been to some funerals, you might remember, uh, sometimes people talk at a funeral, they talk to the person. They talk to the deceased person, uh, sort of in a way still, I guess, trying to communicate with them. Uh, sometimes you picture the person as being up there somewhere, kind of looking down on us. Sometimes, as a variation on that, you, you picture people uh, as kind of being like an angel now. There's an idea that when they've died, they've been sort of converted into an angel, maybe a guardian angel, and now in some sense they're looking down, watching over us. They're kind of like protecting us uh, in some way. And, and I'm not knocking any of this. It's just interesting to observe the different varieties, the different ideas that come out. Sometimes there's a, there's a really common practice now of putting memorabilia on a coffin that associates uh, different things that this person enjoyed through their life with them. And, and you almost get the feeling sometimes with what is said, there's almost a sense where you wonder if they can take this stuff with them somehow past the grave, like, like a modern version of the ancient uh, Egyptian rituals and so on, where people would take uh, things in their lives that were important to them with them as they passed over from death to life. I read the other week a section of death notices in the New Zealand Herald, not the most uplifting experience in the world. I don't know whether you ever do this. But I took, uh, I took some extracts from, from just one day's reading of the death notices in the Herald. And let me just give you some highlights. Uh, and this is just for the purpose of giving you a glimpse into how some people imagine where those they know now are. One person writes, travel well. Another one, see you at the 19th hole in the sky, bro. Uh, another angel at rest. 
has left his beloved wife to join their loved son just the other side of the rainbow, fly with the angels, good night my darling, see you in the morning, and dad your racket's waiting for you at St. Peter's gates. You just get this real variety of views. And I think it would be fair to say that Christians are often just as fuzzy on this stuff as non-Christians. Uh, we, we might have a vague idea of how this stuff works, where people go, where loved ones might be now, but often we're pretty fuzzy. We're not quite sure how all this fits together. Where does heaven kick into it? Is that the end of the story? How does it all work? And this kind of confusion has been around for ages. It's been around as long as human history itself. And you see in Mark chapter 12 this morning, Jesus is dealing with a group of people on exactly this issue. They confront him with a question, which revolves around this whole idea of the afterlife and the resurrection and heaven and so on. It's a group uh, known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of like a movement within Judaism in the first century, kind of like a Christian denomination today uh, in the context of Judaism. That's sort of who they were. They, they had particular views, particular distinctives about them. And the big thing with the Sadducees is that they believed the first five books of the Bible were the most important. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was the big five for them. They weren't too interested in the rest of it. For them, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, that was what we really need to elevate above the rest of Scripture. And when they looked at the Torah, when they looked at the first five books, they didn't see much in there about an afterlife. They didn't see much in there about people having any kind of existence beyond death. And so they concluded there was no afterlife. There was no immortality of the soul. There was no future, any kind of heaven or hell. And there was no sort of day of resurrection that most Jews believed in when, when all people would be raised back to life again. They just discounted the whole lot. And here they come to Jesus with this question. This is their big issue, and they come to him. This is their chance to question the teacher. And they say to him, Teacher, bit of flattery there to start with, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That might sound a bit strange to you, but this is actually uh, one of the laws enshrined in the law of Moses, that if husband and wife uh, don't have any children and the husband dies and he has a brother, the brother has to step in, and marry the wife, marry the uh, widow, uh, in order to produce children for her. So, those of you that have a brother and he's married, just think about that. <laughs> those of you that are, that are married, wives, and you've got a brother-in-law, just think about that. We don't encourage that practice here, but it's an interesting variation of, of the whole marriage thing. That's basically how it was. And so, uh, the Sadducees come with this question, and they say, uh, now, here's a scenario. There were seven brothers. Now you know where this is going already, all right, seven brothers, okay. So the first guy is married to this woman, and he dies, they've got no kids. So it is incumbent upon the second one, according to the, this uh, Levitical law, that he's going to now marry the widow, but he dies as well before any children can be produced, so uh, still no kids. The third brother marries her, same thing, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, on down the line, all seven of the brothers die, leave this woman, no children, finally she dies as well. It's a happy story, isn't it? It's just a cherry story, bedtime reading. Everybody's now dead. And so that's not even the punchline. Then they say to Jesus, okay, here. Now, if there, is, if there is a future day of resurrection, everybody's coming back to life and there's going to be a great party, whose wife is she going to be? Ha-ha, the clincher. This is the big judo move. Here we go. Whose wife is she going to be? And of course, their idea is not just to ask a genuine question. They're trying to trip them up. They're holding up to ridicule this whole idea of a future resurrection because it's going to, it's going to be problematic in, in exactly these kinds of situations. And Jesus responds to them by saying, you got me. That's a good one. 
That Seven Brothers story didn't see it coming. Brilliant. I think I'll just give up right now and go back to heaven, which would be ironic because they didn't believe in heaven. But he, he, he says to them, are you not in error? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's a pretty big hit because they believe they knew the scriptures better than anybody. And Jesus is saying, actually, you don't know the scriptures and you don't even know the power of God. And he goes on to give them two responses, really, to their question. He makes two points. Uh, the first one is in verse 25. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. <clears throat> now, his point is basically this. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Okay, this is the key. Resurrection is not the same as resuscitation. The Sadducees uh, assumed that if there was going to be some future day when everyone somehow came back to life again, that they would just carry on as normal. It would be like the resuscitation of dead corpses. Everyone's just suddenly back alive. Here we are, and we're just going to carry on as normal. Normal social relations, normal human community, everything's just going to be the same, unchanged. And Jesus says, no, no, what you're missing is the fact that when God finally intervenes, there is going to be a radical transformation of all things. There is going to be a tumultuous upheaval of every single thing. And yes, there'll be points of continuity, but there'll be radical discontinuity as well. There's going to be a massive transformation of everything. It's not just resuscitation. It's transformation. It's resurrection. All of creation is going to be renewed, restored, redeemed, uh, the, the new earth. There is going to be the complete overhaul of all types of relationships. We'll receive new resurrection bodies. Uh, you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes into great detail, the new resurrection body made after the image of Christ's own resurrection body. And there will be a radical transformation in the way we relate to each other. I think the scriptures suggest that we'll still have our identities in heaven. Uh, I'll still be Reuben, you'll still be whoever you are. I think it's also fair to conclude that there'll probably be gender uh, at the resurrection. There'll still be male, there'll still be female. But Jesus does seem to say it's hard to get around the fact that he suggests that we won't experience marriage, at least as we experience it here on earth. As soon as you say that, a lot of people get very disappointed. Some of you are thinking, some of you married couples, oh, that's a bit of a bummer. Some of you are thinking that's not too bad, actually. <laughs> <I'm pretty laughs> that's an interesting scenario. I'd like to hear more about that. But he does seem to suggest that there won't be marriage as we know it. But, but friends, before you start uh, launching into catatonic depression over this, uh, there is absolutely no loss of relationship at the resurrection. Here's the key. We, we, we assume that this is somehow some drop-off in relationship. Oh, there's no marriage. Uh, you know, it's all just going to be a decrease. Jesus says when we get to the resurrection, our relationships with one another will be like the angels. Now, be careful here because he doesn't mean you're going to turn into an angel. Some people go in that direction. Like, oh, that's, that, that means we're going to have wings and we sing in songs and halos and things. No, no, no. We're not going to be angels. But in our relating to each other, we'll be like the angels. And how do the angels relate to each other? Well, they relate to each other in the context of this incredible communion with God. Whenever you see the angels and you look at the pictures in Revelation, there's always, they're orbiting around God. They're orbiting around the throne of God somehow. They're, they're ceaselessly uh, worshipping Him. And, and all of their relationships with one another are in the shadow, in the context of this uninhibited communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving and receiving love. Uh, the relationships that we have in the resurrection with each other will be, in a sense, overshadowed by the incredible intimacy that you and I will experience with the living God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. There will be an unbelievable, uninhibited access and communion and intimacy with God. And in the context of that, 
Our relationships with one another will be like the angels. There will be a whole new level of relationship at the resurrection. So there will be no loss of intimacy. There will be no loss of closeness. There will be no loneliness. There will be no, uh, no, no, no fear in relationships. There will only be greater intimacy. The reason there won't be marriage in heaven is because the relationships we'll experience with one another in heaven transcend anything that earthly marriage can offer us. It will be greater than anything you've experienced. There'll be no loss of intimacy between you and your spouse. There'll be no loss of intimacy between you and your best, closest friend, family members, those you care about and cherish. There will be no deficit of that relationship. There's only going to be more. There's only going to be more intimacy. There's only going to be greater vulnerability. It's simply that that transcends earthly categories of marriage, friendship, and family. All of us, the relating to one another is lifted up. It will be lifted up to an entirely new plane altogether that just transcends these categories of relationships on earth. So don't worry about this drop-off. Don't fear that you're suddenly going to be lonely and lost when you get to the final resurrection. There'll be more intimacy. And all of that in the context of unrestricted communion with the God whom we serve. So that's the first point. Resurrection is not the same as resuscitation. It's an entirely transformed experience with new resurrection bodies and a whole new plane of relationship that is unlike anything we can imagine in this lifetime. Now, then Jesus goes on. And here is where he really starts to take... um, to challenge the the Sadducees on their own ground. He says in verse 26, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, that's a bit of a a shot because they believed they'd read the Bible pretty well. Thank you very much. And he says, "Have, have you not even read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush? It's interesting that he takes them to Exodus because remember, they elevated the first five books of the Bible above all of the others. And Jesus doesn't go to the wisdom literature. He doesn't go to the prophets. He goes right to their home turf right to the books that they held to, they believed, and they elevated. And he says, all right, let's look in your own scriptures. There's a home game for the Sadducees. He says, let's take you to Exodus, and let's go to that really well-known story about God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. You might be familiar with this one. God appears. Uh, this bush is burning, and it doesn't, it doesn't go out. And God introduces himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Now, what's Jesus' point here? He's really picking up on the tense of the words, isn't he? He's picking up on the fact that God says, I am the God. Because if there's one thing that we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when God appeared to Moses, it's that they were all dead. They'd been dead for hundreds of years. And if they'd simply ceased to exist at death, and that was the end of the story for them, God would have appeared to Moses and said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. And I was the God of Jacob. Jesus' point is that he didn't say that. He appeared to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham's been dead hundreds of years, I am his God. And as one commentator rightly put it, only alive people have a God. In some sense, when God appears to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They're still existing in some form, not physical human bodily form, but they're still alive somewhere. And Jesus' point is, therefore, there is some life after death. There is some life beyond the grave, because here is God uh, still uh, interacting with, still having relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob long after they are dead. And so here's really the question, and it moves us a little bit beyond this text today to the broader issue of where are they? Where are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? 
And where are all those saints of the Old Testament and followers of Christ in the New Testament and all those that uh, you and I have lost who know and love Jesus? Where are they? And the answer is, they're in heaven. It's simple enough, isn't it? They're in heaven. Often we think of heaven as some future reality, like a place that Jesus is just preparing now, but it's not quite ready yet. Heaven is a present reality. It's just think of heaven as the realm in which God exists. It's God's space. It's His realm. It's not up there somewhere in the clouds. It's not part of the physical cosmos. It is simply a realm that sits side by side with the physical earth, heaven and earth. Think of them side by side, not so much above and below, side by side, separated only by a thin veneer, heaven and earth. And there is constant interplay in the Scriptures between heaven and earth. As you read the Bible this week, think about what's going on between heaven and earth. When God speaks to people, He is crossing from heaven to speak on earth. When He moves and creates and restores and redeems, He's acting on earth, even though He resides in heaven. The angels reside with God in heaven, and yet they're constantly crossing over to earth, appearing to people and then crossing back into heaven. When Jesus came to earth, He came from heaven to earth, then went back to heaven again, right through the Scriptures. And when the dead in Christ, when people die who are in Christ, who know Jesus and follow Him, the soul of that person simply passes from earth to heaven. The body goes into the ground, it's cremated, it's buried, whatever happens to it, and the soul of that person goes to heaven. So body and soul are separated, just as heaven and earth are separated. Is that making sense? So in heaven, the souls of those who follow Christ are now, right now, right this moment, residing with God in His presence, consciously aware of His presence, worshipping Him with the angels. That's the present reality. I don't think the Bible really backs up the idea of a soul sleeping, uh, like people die and then they just sort of sleep until some future day. Paul says, if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Those are your only two options. Either you're in the body right here, uh, or you're present with the Lord. And, and death is the immediate transition between those two states. So right now, those that you and I know who love Jesus, who have died in Christ, are in heaven in the presence of the angels, worshipping Him around His throne. It's the same place Jesus called paradise. It's the same place He called Abraham's side in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's all one place, not different types of heaven. Heaven. This is God's space. It's a present reality. And it's existing side by side with the earth. It's a place of refreshing, it's a place of renewing, it's a place of comfort, and it's a place for those who are there now of great anticipation and great expectation. Because here is the clincher, and here is where I think most evangelical Christians come a little off track. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the story. Heaven is not the final destination for you and I. It's not the final destination for those who love Christ. Heaven is currently where those are, who have died in Christ. But one day, here's what's going to happen. Jesus will return. He'll return from heaven to earth. And at that point, the Scriptures tell us all those who have died, as well as all those who are currently living, Christian or not, will be resurrected. They'll be raised, in some sense, bodily, back to life. Righteous and wicked, just and the unjust, Christian, non-Christian, all will be raised, the Scriptures say, so that all can be judged in the body. And there will be a great judgment. That's not something if you're a follower of Christ, that you have to fear or worry about. It is God opening the word of life and discovering the names of those who are committed to the Lord Jesus, whose names are found in His book of life. It's nothing to do with what you've done. It's nothing to do with how good or bad you've been. It's simply whether you are found in Christ and whether you've confessed Jesus to be your Lord. That is the essence of that judgment. 
And then those who are found in Christ, those of us who know and love Jesus, we then receive those newly resurrected bodies. And we go on to experience this resurrection age. That's really the final piece in the puzzle, is not heaven, but resurrection. That's why that word crops up so much in this passage. That's why Jesus doesn't talk about heaven. That's why in the scriptures you can do a word study on heaven and you very rarely find it used as some future destination. That's more the present. But the future, when the Bible talks about the final destination of God's people, it's this picture of resurrection. It's this picture of heaven and earth actually coming together. It's this picture of body and soul currently separated coming together. It's this picture of Christ and his church coming together. Resurrection is the ultimate union, heaven and earth, body and soul, Christ and the church. The renewed earth where we receive newly resurrected bodies. We don't fly off as disembodied spirits with bodies of vapor uh, just floating around on clouds with harps and halos. This is right on terra firma, a newly resurrected earth which has become a heavenly earth because Revelation 21 pictures that heavenly city coming down to earth where we then reside with God, with his people, on through eternity. Resurrection is like life after, life after death. If you want to think about it that way. Life after death, think of heaven. But then life after that, life after life after death, think about resurrection. That's the final resting place for the people of God. And as Christians, I would argue that we need to focus as much, if not more, on that resurrection idea in our thinking, in our singing, in our talking, in our future hope, as we do on heaven. We constantly throw around the idea of heaven, but biblically, if we're to be biblically grounded, our final hope, our final destination is that resurrection age. You say, well, who cares? What does it matter? I mean, God's just going to work everything out eventually anyway. I think it matters for a few reasons. Firstly, it matters because a sound grip on heaven and resurrection and the afterlife, it prevents you and I from being blown around by every little fanciful speculation that comes our way. We're very easy in this area. I think our minds and our imaginations are just held captive by all kinds of fantasies that come along and just speculative notions and, and what we call folk theology just stuff that you might pick up here and there or at a party from uh, someone somewhere in some church somewhere. I guess people like me. And we pick up some stuff all over the place and we kind of have this potpourri of ideas. We need to return to the scriptures. We need to return to Jesus' teaching and ground ourselves so that we are as clear as we can be. And there is a lot of mystery and there's a lot of unknowns, but we at least try to be as clear as we can be as the scriptures allow us to be about how things will work as we die and uh, as those we love have died. Here's the second reason I think it's important, because it helps us think clearly about those we know who have passed away. I know this raises difficult questions for some of you about the, about the flip side of all of this, about the negative side, those who don't know Christ and, and, and what's the story there, and we just don't have time to cover all that. I wouldn't be doing it justice if I just used that as a sideline. We'll try and circle back to some of that at a future time. I want to try and be faithful to this text and focus on the positive on the resurrection today. Uh, and for those we know who are in Christ, it helps us visualize, it helps us know where they are, it helps us have that confident assurance that they are right now in the conscious presence of Christ, being refreshed, being renewed, and holding out just as we are for that final destination, that final day of resurrection. That's why these things uh, are important. And I think resurrection is finally important because it grounds us in the present. 
It helps us live our lives now in view of where we will one day be. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this huge extended discourse on the resurrection, and you can read that. He goes into more details about what the body will be like and what's going to happen when Christ returns. But right at the end of that chapter, after he's finished outlining this incredible hope that we have one day, it's all going to be amazing, he brings it right back to the present. Let me read you just the last verse of chapter 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the result of a sound theology of resurrection. That's the result of someone who understands what's going to happen in the future and understands that that does have an impact on how I live in the present. Because those things you and I do as we invest ourselves in the kingdom of God now, as we participate in God's mission on earth, as we love one another, as we worship God, as we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in a multitude of ways through our witness, through our love for others, through reaching out and being part of God's mission, we know these things are not in vain. We know these things are not going to be burned up one day and thrown away like chaff to the wind. We know they'll find a place in God's future. We know these things that we do now in the name of Christ, these things that we do now which are not just the clutter of everyday experience, but which are done in Jesus' name as investments in the eternal kingdom. We know those things will one day be caught up into this glorious resurrection. They'll, be, they'll find a place in the new creation. They will be dividends in that future down payment that we'll one day experience. These things that we do in the present matter. These lives that we lead are not just a practice run for heaven or for the resurrection. They are important. They are now the building of that kingdom that will finally be consummated when Christ returns. So we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that should be like a compass in the present. God wants us to live our lives now in view of his future. He wants us not just to look behind us to the cross, but to look onwards to the future resurrection as well. And we live between the first and second coming of Christ. And those two points provide an anchor for where we are in the present. They help to ground us. They help to ground us in difficult times. They help to ground us in good times. They help to keep moving us on because we know where we're going and we know it helps us prioritize in this life the stuff that's important and the stuff that's really of no eternal value. That's the result of resurrection thinking. As we close today, let me read you the words of a great old hymn that I came across in my preparation. There's a, as you read the hymns, I mean, the, the hymnody is as muddled as anyone else on this stuff. Don't assume that you're going to go grab a hymn and that's going to have it all sorted out. Some of the old hymn writers, they were in all kinds of places on this stuff as well. But here's one that I think gets it exactly right. It's a hymn that talks in its last couple of verses, first about heaven, then about resurrection. It's a two-stage process. doesn't all just muddle it into one. First, the second to last verse is this. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. There's heaven. Alleluia, alleluia. And then the hymn writer goes on. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise. There's resurrection in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's our hope, friends. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're expecting. That's what God has in store for us. Let's let it ground us in the present and let's live our lives in view of that resurrection that's coming one day. Shall we pray?